Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Lawrence Schiffman. Professor Schiffman holds the Judge Abraham Lieberman Professorship in Hebrew and Judaic Studies at NYU, New York University. Professor Schiffman is a popular, sought-after speaker with a focus on the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jewish religious, political, and social history in late antiquity, and the history of Jewish law and Talmudic literature. Professor Schiffman is affiliated with many, many associations, including the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation, the International Organization for Qumran Studies, the Israel Exploration Society, the Jewish Law Association, and many, many more. Professor Schiffman has authored numerous books, including Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls, Who Was a Jew, Rabbinic and Halakhic Perspectives on the Jewish Christian Schism, From Text to Tradition, A History of Judaism in Second Temple and Rabbinic Times. And today we will be focusing on the Dead Sea Scrolls, as Professor Schiffman has aptly been described as a celebrated specialist on the scrolls. And um, I went on to Amazon and purchased the Qumran and Jerusalem Studies in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the History of Judaism, and urge all our listeners and viewers to simply go on to Amazon, click a button, comes directly to your house, and it's a, a wonderful um, study on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, Professor Shippen, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Uh, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, this is a kind of a uh, funny story. So I did my undergraduate and graduate work at Brandeis, and I had taken one course on Dead Sea Scrolls with the Bible scholar Nachum Sarna. And then when I was looking for a doctoral dissertation topic, so I was trying to find a way to combine studies that I did in Tanakh, and, and that is biblical studies, and also in Talmudic studies. And someone said, why don't you do the Dead Sea Scrolls? So I basically tried it. And I took one of my doctoral exams in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls texts and then went on to write a dissertation on the question of halakha in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jewish law. Now, then I figured I might move on to something else. I didn't really get get the point that it would become the mainstream of my activity. What then happened is that after I wrote a second study on Jewish law in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the scrolls as an overall field became much more significant and got much more attention. And it became pretty obvious that I was in the Dead Sea Scrolls to stay, one might say. And that's what happened. Excellent. Um, Just very briefly, when and how were the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered? Well, there is the very famous story about the Bedouin boy in 1947, actually two Bedouin boys who were uh, following a goat and uh, trying to find this goat that went into a cave. This story is a little bit, uh, let's put it this way, not the whole story for several reasons. The first reason is that already in 1907, Solomon Schechter published a document from the Cairo Geniza, which he called the Fragments of a Tzadokite Work, which turned out to be in 10 copies in Qumran. And in a certain sense, that was the beginning of the discussion of this sectarian group that uh, eventually turned out to have left all these texts at Qumran. How they 
text got there in the Middle Ages in the Cairo Geniza, I'm not sure, but that was really the beginning of the story. And then the famous Bedouin boy, well, one has to understand that the Tamira Bedouin, the family from which this boy came, were constantly involved in hunting for antiquities. It's much more likely that the two Bedouin boys were hunting for antiquities and came upon some absolutely phenomenal antiquities, which uh, ended up being sold for too little money through an intermediary to what was then called the Palestine Archaeological Museum, or even earlier those that were sold to Israel uh, directly and indirectly before the 1948 war. So in, in essence... The, the origins of it go back already to the Cairo Geniza and then the Bedouin boys who probably were really hunting for antiquities. Did, did um, Solomon Schefter, when he found the Tzedakah fragment, did he understand and appreciate what that was or do we only understand it after the uh, discovery in the in 19th well, Schefter, Schefter understood that this was a document of a Jewish sect. Now, he identified the sect as being connected with a with, with a, a type of a Samaritan group that tended greatly toward uh, Sadducee, and that's why he called it Sadakite work, Sadducean ideas. Now, however, it's very important to understand that immediately after the release of the scroll, there was a very uh, big debate about what it was. And every single theory that would be put out later was already put forward. So, for example, the Essene hypothesis which became so popular, was put forward. And this uh, thesis was only one. Early Christians, Pharisees, Sadducees, every group you could possibly name, including the medieval Karaites, since many of those analyzing the text could not believe that there would be Second Temple texts surviving. But Schechter knew there was Second Temple. And Lewis Ginsburg, when, when Schechter first did this, he was at Cambridge. But then he went to the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York the conservative rabbinical school. Then he brought Louis Ginsburg there from Germany. Louis Ginsburg had already written another work, which in English is called uh, An Unknown Jewish Sect, and in German, Eine Unbekannte Jüdische Sekte, in which he put forward again Second Temple dating. He said it was an unknown sect, but very close to the Pharisees. Here he was actually wrong. But nonetheless, his study is tremendous, tremendous treasure house of all kinds of interesting uh, information, which helps us to understand this sectarian group. So really, the outlines were already there. And then the scrolls were found, starting with the 1947 Bedouin boy. And uh, that's, I think, a much more complicated story than the Bedouin boy looking for a goat that had wandered into a cave. What were the main Jewish sects uh, at that time in the onset of the Common Era? Well, according to Josephus, Josephus really tells us about the Jewish sectarian groups immediately after telling the story of the Maccabean Revolt. So he really gets up to the point in 152 BCE when Jonathan the Hasmonean was able to establish himself as the ruler over Judea. That itself is a complicated story. But at any rate, at that point, he says, well, at this time, there were three Jewish sects. And he starts to tell us about the Pharisees, who are the forerunners of the rabbis, the Sadducees, who were primarily aristocratic, priestly, the aristocratic, priestly group, and then the Essenes. 
Now, the Essenes are a sectarian group, as he describes them, that do have a lot in common with the Dead Sea Scrolls group. And indeed, there is an account, even though it has some inaccuracies, there is an, an account which places the Essenes at the uh, air in the area above Ein Gedi. Now, Qumran is in a, above Ein Gedi. The real question about the Essenes is, what do we know about them? Josephus says there were two kinds, marrying and unmarrying, that is to say, celibate. And furthermore, it seems that there may have been more sects around or subsects to the sects that we actually know. So this seems like what Josephus did was to give a simple version of something which is more complicated. On the other hand, there are some people who seem to talk as if there were like massive numbers of different groups. I don't think it's true. It's a limited number of groups. But these are the ones that we basically know about. And what are the main groups of writings that comprise the Dead Sea Scrolls? We would say that the Dead Sea Scrolls can be divided into three types of texts. One third are the books of Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. There are present every single book except for Esther. But really that is a slightly misleading statement because we're counting Ezra and Nehemiah as one book and there is no Nehemiah. But okay. Then we have the second approximately one third of the materials are Second Temple texts that we refer to as apocryphal, with a small a, by which we mean books that are like the Bible, about the Bible, related to the Bible. But the key point is that we call these non-sectarian because they don't relate to the actual sectarian group that hid the materials and composed the last group. The third group of texts that we call sectarian texts are those that have the language, terminology, and ideology of the group of sectarians that occupied the archaeological site of this place that we call Qumran. Obviously, when they occupied it, it wasn't yet an archaeological site. It was a set of buildings, group of buildings that were used by this sectarian group. And that group composed the third group of texts, which are the ones that people usually mean when they say who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. But that is a kind of generalization because those of us who study the scrolls are studying all three groups of texts for what they tell us about Judaism at that time and what they tell us in this period, which is also formative for the beginnings of Christianity soon after. And how many, how many people comprised this, this sect and what were their unique practices and doctrines? Let's get to the easy part of how many people. If you want to know how many people lived at the place, so apparently it was only up to a possibility at the most of several hundred. Now, members outside, because of the way they describe themselves, well, this gets to the question, can we use the Essene comparison? If they are the Essenes, then we know it's several thousand people scattered through the country. If they're not the Essenes, it's probably a similar number of people. We have to remember that most Jews were not members of sects. Josephus tells us that most of the Jews followed the Pharisaic way. We've come to use a term called common Judaism for the average person in Second Temple times. 
but they weren't members. I hate to use this comparison, but it really is a good one. Those of us who remember when there was such a thing as the Soviet Union, and I know one can make unfunny jokes about its possible return in the present, but leaving that aside, right, those of us who remember it, remember that the number of members of the party was about 15%. And I think that this is an example of the fact that most people were just not involved in these affairs. So most of the Jews were not members of some kind of a group. And probably we're talking about a couple of thousand people who are the core of each one of these groups that we say existed. So to get back now to the, the uh, question of the particular beliefs and ideas. So first of all, we have to emphasize that most of Judaism was shared by all these sectarian groups. On the other hand, there are specific beliefs to this group. One specific group uh, belief to this group is predestination. The idea that everything was predetermined by God and that there is no free will. You just think you have free will. Another specific idea of this sectarian group is that they sort of uh, picture this uh, this group as having a tremendous, tremendous apocalyptic messianic ideology. There's going to be a great war. The war is going to lead to the messianic era. It's going to happen soon. In fact, they may have thought that that was what was happening when the Romans conquered the land of Israel in 63 BCE. So that's another thing, what we could call extreme messianism. Another area is that they seem to follow an approach to Jewish law and interpretation of the Bible that is very similar to that of the Sadducees, perhaps identical to that of the Sadducees. That's another main idea or belief. But we should be careful because they're loaded with things that are the same as regular traditional Judaism. Just give one example. The first Sabbath law says that the Sabbath begins when the sun is distant from the horizon by its own circumference. circumference. And then they quote the verse, observe the Sabbath to sanctify it. Well, this is exactly the same as the later rabbis who say you have to start keeping Shabbat a little bit before sunset. And they quote the very same verse. And I can go on like that, but I want to go on with an, another example from the Sabbath which shows you how things may be parallel but slightly different. And that is that whereas in uh, rabbinic literature you have a Sabbath limit of 2,000 cubits outside of the settled area that you're permitted to go, here you have two Sabbath limits. One Sabbath limit, which is general, of 1,000, and the other of 2,000 if you're pasturing an animal. Now you may ask where this comes from. If you look at the end of the Book of Numbers, You'll see that the passage from which the rabbis derived the 2,000 also mentions 1,000. And it's hard to tell what's 1,000 and what's 2,000 in that passage. Well, they had a slightly different idea, but it's in the same spirit of ideas. That's the point that I'm making, that it's, it's not all as far off as someone might expect if you're thinking, for example, of political parties today. And you expect, you know, that somebody is for abortion, anti-abortion, right? These things are not exactly like that. The question is, how do you observe the Torah? And there are different ideas about how to do that correctly among these various sectarian groups. For those who still argue that and identify the uh, Betsy sect with the Essenes, what is their argument and what is the counter-argument to that? Well, the argument to identify them with the Essenes is that Pliny the Elder is the one who mentions that uh, the Essenes were right above Enkedi, 
and there is really no other settlement of that type of uh, size and scope, let alone one where they found a bunch of scrolls. That's the argument about that the uh, Frank Cross uh, gave for this. Now, other arguments have to do with legitimate similarities between the descriptions in Philo and Josephus of the Essenes and the Dead Sea Sectarians. Now, the argument against it is the word Essene never appears in scrolls. We don't even know what the word Essene means, by the way, which is an interesting fact. Never appears in the scrolls. There are certain minor differences, and some of the parallels are also parallel to rabbinic literature. And so therefore need not definitely indicate that it's the Essenes. I take this, I think, uh, a little bit differently by suggesting that perhaps Essene is a wide term, and Josephus and Philo are describing a certain group of Essenes. There may have been other Essene-like, or what I jokingly call Essenoid groups, that somehow or another are similar to the Essenes, but not exactly the same as the ones described by Josephus and Philo. Because it is hard to simply dismiss the parallels and this uh, text of Pliny. When you talk about the category of the apocryphal writings, what does that include? Where where does that fit into um, the history of of the period and and, and of, of the Jewish approach to that? Well, the first thing one has to understand is that despite what the rabbis said later on, there were numerous, numerous Jewish books circulating during the Second Temple period being read by Jews. Now, this group that we sort of call Group 2, apocryphal books, or apocryphal Bible-like books, etc., are books that we understand not to be limited to our sectarian group, but to be read more widely by Jews. This is supported by the fact that a small number of fragments of similar books have been found in Masada. And these are the works that the rabbis call Sfarim Chitzoniim, which they're actually against reading on Shabbat, which gets into the question of whether or not they're against reading them at all, or only against reading them during the time when public lessons were going on in synagogues of Torah as the rabbis understood it. Now, one way or another, this term apocryphal has to be understood. What people have to know is that when the Greek Bible was somehow or another, we don't really know how, bequeathed from the Jews to the Christians around the beginning of the Christian era, when that happened, so there came in its collection, either collected by Jews beforehand or by the earliest Christians, we don't know, there came a group of 12 books that are in that Old Testament, as the Christians call it, that are not in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible of the Jews. Now, these 12 books are all Jewish books. You have the Abensira, which is quoted by the Talmud. You have one or two Maccabees and a bunch of other books, which are legitimate Jewish books from Second Temple times, some written originally composed in Hebrew and translated into Greek, and we just don't have the Hebrew. Some, like Bensira, we have part of the Hebrew, including a very big Masada manuscript, some small Qumran manuscripts, others that we don't really know, but Wisdom of Solomon, for example, is quoted by Nachmanides, the Ramban, in his introduction. So these books floated around somehow. Some have Geniza fragments in some kind of Hebrew forms. 
but they basically were preserved as part of what we could call the Christian Greek Bible and later Latin Bible. Now, of those books, a few of them are found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. But among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a much bigger list of books that look like biblical or quasi-biblical books. And some of them, which we only knew before from Greek or even Ethiopic. To give the Ethiopic example, Jewish Ethiopic, Gez, Semitic Ethiopic, so well, it's not just Jewish, but it's, this, it's the one that the Jews use for their holy text, Semitic Ethiopic, preserved the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch. And they are found, Enoch in Aramaic and Jubilees in Hebrew, these are apparently the original languages, at Qumran. Or Tobit, which is in the Apocrypha that's in every Catholic Bible. You know, this is funny, the Catholics have the Hanukkah story in their Bible, and the Jews don't. So anyhow, every Catholic has in his Bible the Book of Tobit, there are two manuscripts of Tobit in Aramaic and Qumran, probably the original, and one a Hebrew translation. So this is what we mean when we say apocryphal-type books. But these were books widely read by Jews during the Second Temple period. Rabbinic literature was against these books. And somehow or another, they did not survive in Jewish hands, except in a few small cases. Ben Sira, as we mentioned, and there are others, there are, but in the Middle Ages, some of them were retranslated back into Hebrew. Today, of course, they're all available translated into Hebrew. So some people think that they have the originals. They don't. If you get a Hebrew copy of Maccabees, all you've got is a translation of Maccabees back into Hebrew. We don't have the originals, unfortunately. What kind of tefillin were found in the uh, caves? Well, first thing that we have to know is that in Qumran, there are like 22 tefillin phylacteries that were found, but they found almost all broken open. So what we have, we have to realize, first of all, these tefillin are about three-eighths of an inch. And that's because of the fact that they were worn all day, unlike just being worn for prayer, where you can say we want a big one to make sure that the letters are written perfectly. These are very small. Now, second of all, just like the regular tefillin that we know, the uh, hand tefillin is one piece, one therefore one compartment, whereas there is room for four different parchments in a head tefillin. That you find in Qumran also. So if you're looking at a, the tefillin box, the outside, and it's got uh, a bunch of lines on it, just like modern tefillin, you know, it's a head tefillin. Now, the tefillin come in two kinds as far as the contents. One is exactly the same as the ones that you would get today in a synagogue or in a, you bought them in a Jewish bookstore or wherever they're selling tefillin, right? Exactly the same. The other has passages that are above or below. That is, the text has more text, including some of what in each of those biblical passages is above it or below it. And this accounts for a very important fact, because the Shema is Deuteronomy 6, but Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. So there are some Qumran fill-in with the Ten Commandments in them. So the two general types are fill-in that look have exactly the contents we have, and those have been called by some scholars Pharisaic fill-in, and fill-in that some call sectarian fill-in, which have not only those passages, but the continuation or part above of some of these texts. Now, there's a lot of questions people ask about the order of the tefillin because of the debates between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam in the Middle Ages 
actually, right, the tefillin from Qumran that are complete don't answer, are not of either kind. They're actually like Rashi with the in middle reversed. Some have suggested that there is no order at all in Qumran tefillin. And the problem is that a lot of those for which we have the the tefillin already taken apart, basically, from the process. And what we've got is a bunch of the texts of the tefillin. Because they're broken, we can't establish the order. Now, later on, we have tefillin, both of what we would call the Rashi type and the Ravenu Tam type, from the caves of the Bar Kokhba period. Bar Kokhba rebellion being 132 to 5 CE, and many Jews hid in caves around the Dead Sea during that period. Two of those cave collections, some of the smaller caves, have been discovered, and, and they also yielded some tefillin. 